Let's hear God's word from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, beginning with verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Genesis 3.19. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we have the privilege this morning to consider the great promise made indirectly to Adam and Eve immediately upon the occasion of their fall, we pray that you would help us to understand it. We pray that you would help us to understand our lives, our callings, our place in this world in the light of it. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the grace and mercy of God that gave this great promise before any sign of repentance on the part of the people whom you made. Teach us, O Lord, to value your grace as we should. In Jesus' name, amen. In many ways, Genesis chapter 3 is the saddest chapter in the Bible. I know there are some other chapters that could compete with it, but if you want to just trace back the source of all sorrow, the source of all suffering, this is where it is. This is where it all got started. Adam and Eve were put on probation. Adam and Eve had a very simple test to pass. They were told, you can eat of the fruit of the tree of every tree in the Garden of Eden. You can have whatever you want. There's only one exception, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, that was the tree from which they chose to eat. And it involved us all in a great deal of misery. They went from being holy and happy to being sinful and miserable. Adam's sin caused us to be guilty and sinful. So this is the source. This is the root of the problem. And after they had eaten, of course, then they were ashamed. And then when they heard God's voice, instead of responding with love and confidence, instead of seeking to the Lord, they sought to hide themselves. They sought to hide their shame behind fig leaves. They sought to hide themselves from the omniscient, the all-knowing, the all-seeing God. And as we read, God interrogated them. God asked them what they had done. As Adam gave an excuse, he turned to Eve. As Eve gave an excuse, he turned to the serpent. 
and in his words to the serpent, in a curse pronounced upon the instrument of the devil, there's also found what's been called the protevangelium, the first gospel. There's the mother promise from which all other promises in the Bible take their rise, of which they are developments or applications. And so in this way, you could say that the first time the gospel was ever proclaimed, it was proclaimed in the form of a curse on the serpent. It was proclaimed in Adam and Eve's hearing, but they were overhearers in one sense at this point. They weren't the people being directly addressed. When they were directly addressed, they were told what the consequences would be for their sin. But before they were told about the consequences, they were given the privilege of overhearing this curse on the serpent. So we want to think about Genesis 3.15 this morning, the mother promise, the first gospel. There are several things that are really quite unique about this verse in many ways. But we'll hope to highlight them all as we go through. God is still speaking to the serpent here. He said, you're cursed more than all cattle. In other words, more than any other animal, more than every beast of the field. And then he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, what is the effect of this? for the serpent, for the devil. Well, a lot of people will take this as an explanation of why most human beings don't like snakes. Okay, fair enough. But there's obviously more to it than that. What is the effect of this? Well, if you were the devil, I understand you're not, but if you were, what impact would this have on you? Well, if you know that there's going to be ongoing enmity between you and the seed of the woman, if you know that the seed of the woman is going to crush you, what does this make you hate? Well, it makes you hate childbirth, doesn't it? It makes you hate new children being brought into the world. That's how the enmity, that's how the hostility, that's how the war is prolonged. That's how it's carried on in some way. And so it's no surprise that the devil has been against childbirth. There's no surprise that the devil opposes childbirth now. In the ancient world, a lot of times it would be by exposing children so that they would die of frostbite, of hunger, whatever. Or it could be through human sacrifice, offering the children to the gods. In our own time, of course, we have murder centers in most of the cities of the United States, where millions of children are slaughtered. And that's not just here in the U.S., that's around the world that these things go on. Well, the devil has always been inclined in this direction. He's always been inclined to be murderous. He's a murderer, as the Lord Jesus tells us. And he particularly hates childbirth. That's something he's very much against. But it also gives to him an indication. His time is short. There may be damage that he can do, but it's not unlimited. There is resistance. There is opposition. At this moment, the devil might have been feeling pretty good about himself in some ways. 
God made Adam and Eve. He made them in his own image. He blessed them. He gave them all these amazing things. And the devil comes in and pretty easily takes it all away. The devil comes in and very quickly overthrows Eve and she pulls Adam down as well. I mean, Adam participates, right? I'm not blaming Eve for Adam. But the devil got his way, apparently. And the Lord lets him know that's not the end of the story. He might have thought it was all over. He might have thought Adam and Eve were going to be judged and that was the end of the human race. But it wasn't. There was a promise. God was not going to allow Satan to triumph. And so there was going to be enmity. Now, this enmity is going to be personal, but it's also going to be collective. You notice how he says that, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, the devil had come to the woman deceiving her, telling her that God couldn't be trusted, telling her that God had flat out lied. Of course, he was lying about that. And she'd gone along with him. They'd become, quote unquote, friends. But now there was going to be enmity. You know, that says to us something. It says to us that God was going to work in Eve to bring about a change of perspective, to bring about a change of heart. She was now going to hate and repudiate the devil that she'd listened to and believed and followed. So Satan's first victim is going to be the first person that God rescues, if you want to look at it. In that light, God did not leave Eve as spoil for Adam, for Satan, excuse me. He brought her back. He rescued her. He put enmity between her and the serpent. But it's not just individual enmity. It's also collective enmity between your seed and her seed. Now, this collective aspect of it, we'll look at, Lord willing, in the sermons to come. So I don't want to spend too much time on it this morning. But this involves ongoing war, perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. As she gives birth to children, there will be those who resist, who oppose, who fight against the serpent. Now, the serpent's not going to be all by himself. He will also recruit a people, not by childbirth directly, but through parasitism, I guess you could call it, through temptation, through luring people away from what they ought to be. And there will be ongoing conflict then, not just between the, the serpent and the woman, but between the peoples who coalesce around them. And of course, there's also a climactic element to this. There will be one person particularly who is the seed of the woman, one person particularly who crushes the head of the serpent. So there's personal, there's collective. You've got this ongoing enmity that shows up in two different lines of people. You also have ultimately victory. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there is a cost to this victory. There are casualties in this war, in the ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's not an easy victory. It's not snap your fingers and you're done. As we work through the remaining sermons in the series, I think we'll see something of the toll, something of the cost of this. But there is a limitation. The serpent will have limited success. You shall bruise his heel. 
but the seed of the woman is going to have a complete triumph. He shall bruise your head. Now, when we say all of this, hopefully we all understand what is being talked about. Matthew Henry says that in this verse, you have a prediction of the incarnation, you have a prediction of the suffering and death of Christ, and you have a prediction of his victory. And I think that's true. There is going to be somebody who's genuinely descended from Eve, a seed of a woman. Now, why is that highlighted? Why is this promise made in terms of the woman instead of in terms of Adam? Well, I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is that Satan was the, or that, excuse me, Satan tempted Eve first. Eve was the first to fall. So in terms of his easiest victory, in terms of his first victory, it is announced to Satan that he will be humiliated. He will be defeated by one who genuinely comes from Eve. After how easily he deceived Eve and led her astray, he might have thought, man, there's no threat here. There's no problem. I've got nothing to worry about. Oh, but you are going to have something to worry about. You will be defeated in the very nature that you just overthrew. But of course, another reason is to highlight the reality that when Christ was incarnated, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, there was no man involved. It was a virgin conception and a virgin birth. So Christ was made of a woman in a unique way, in a special way, in a way that is not true of the rest of us. All of the people of God belong to the seed of the woman. But Christ, of course, is that seed by way of excellence. He stands out as the ultimate, as the climactic seed of the woman. His heel is going to be bruised. The line of the seed of the woman suffers many casualties, experiences a lot of torment, but is never defeated, is never put down, is never eliminated. And ultimately, Christ does triumph. He doesn't merely inconvenience the serpent. He crushes his head. Now, by and large, I think that gets at the meaning of the verse. But now I want us to think a little bit about where it comes in the Bible and the terms in which this first gospel promise is made. We've already highlighted this a little bit. But the very first gospel promise is not even given in the form of a promise to Adam and Eve or to human beings at all. They overhear it in the form of a curse on the serpent. So there's a couple of elements to draw out of that. One, as I said, the serpent was the first to sin, so the serpent is the first to be cursed. Now, as Adam and Eve listen to that, they have this in mind before they are faced with the consequences of their sin. And that is definitely the grace and mercy of God. Martin Luther, in his beautiful commentary on this passage, writes about how their Hearts were sustained, how the sun of comfort rose on them before they were faced with the consequences. It gave them a hope and stay. They were taught by this promise to believe. They were taught by this overheard curse to trust that God was not done with them. If you had been Eve, if you had been in Eve's situation at this point in time, what would you have been feeling? You ate 
the forbidden fruit. You gave to Adam and he also ate the forbidden fruit. You've involved a whole human race in sin and guilt and misery. Could you deal with it? If then you were told, okay, here's the judgment, and that was it. What a despairing moment. What an awful moment. But God gives comfort. God gave comfort first. Eve has not said, I'm sorry. When God said, what did you do? She blamed the serpent. She didn't take responsibility. She didn't acknowledge her fault. And of course, the same thing goes for Adam. So here their hearts are sustained, wicked though they are, inexcusable though they are, rebellious though they are. God gives them comfort. He says it's not all over yet. Before they hear the terms of the curse upon them, they understand that the human race is going to continue. There will be a seed of the woman. And that's confirmed, of course, when he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Yeah, there's going to be pain, but there's also going to be ongoing life. They understand that they have been put in opposition to the serpent. They're not given over to the serpent. They're not given up to him. On the contrary, they're going to be against the serpent. And God is going to fight on their side. What tremendous comfort. God knew what he was doing. Like that even needs to be said. But God was a wonderful pastor here, if I can put it in those terms. And God gave gospel comfort even before He faced them with the consequences of their own sin. Well, that certainly highlights the grace of God, doesn't it? God didn't wait for repentance. God didn't wait for Adam and Eve to say, oh, no, we've made a huge mistake. God didn't wait for them to ask for mercy. God came. God sought them out. And even under the form of a curse, God preached the gospel to Adam and Eve. That's grace. That's taking the initiative to be kind, to be merciful. And that is holding up their hearts with a promise on which they can believe. They had reason to trust that God was a merciful and a forgiving God because of his judgment on the serpent. But there's another lesson to draw out from this being the first proclamation of the gospel. God isn't talking to Adam and Eve. He's talking to Satan, and he's announcing that there's going to be a history-spanning war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The rest of history is the working out of this enmity in a variety of different ways. Certainly the rest of sacred history, the rest of what the Bible has to teach us, is a working out of this ongoing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In that way, this verse is important not only as being the first gospel promise, but as also being the key that unlocks the rest of the history that you find written down in the Bible. As you're reading through the Old Testament and also the New Testament, pay attention to that. Ask yourself about how does this passage relate to the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? Many, many times, that's one of the most illuminating questions you can ask of any historical passage in the Bible. But I want you to notice what it does. It kind of puts Adam and Eve on the sidelines, doesn't it? God says, I will put enmity. So who's really fighting? Is it going to be Eve versus the devil in round two? Well, that would end the same way as round one 
one way or another. I'm not saying it would have the exact same outcome, but the devil would win. But God says, I will put enmity. Who's entering the ring now? It is the Lord God. So who is always bringing about salvation? Who overthrows the devil? Is it Eve? Is it us? No, it is the Lord. Now, there's a couple of applications from that. One is that in one sense, we can sort of see ourselves as being incidental to the conflict. What I mean by that is that there is a spiritual war raging, but we shouldn't think that the war is between us and somebody else. The war is between God and Satan, and we're involved, but we're not the main characters. Now, that explains a lot in the Bible. It explains how we can be talked about as being captive to one spiritual power or another. We looked at this a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 6. We're either slaves of sin or we're slaves of Christ. Well, that's just our position. That's just where we are. We're not the main characters in this story. We're not the most important people. We are the battleground in some ways. We're the prize fought over in some other ways. But we're not the main fighters. So on the one hand, that should teach us humility, right? The spiritual war is not about me. It's about the conflict between good and evil. It's about the conflict between good and Satan. Now, I need to pick a side. I need to be on a side, but it's not circling around me. I'm not at the center of this moral universe. But it should also be, at the same time that it humbles me, it should also be tremendously comforting. I'm not alone in this spiritual battle. I'm not even the main fighter. I'm a support troop, maybe. I'm way in the back of the battle in many ways. There was a champion who went out front, like when Goliath challenged the armies of Israel. And one man, God's chosen man, went out and confronted Goliath and overthrew him, David. Well, what were the rest of the Israelites doing? They were mostly standing around watching and waiting for the signal to go in and mop up. Well, that's where we are. Our champion has gone in, has crushed the head of the serpent. We're watching, waiting for the signal to mop up. There is some conflict that we experience. I understand that. We'll talk about that more later on. But we're not in the forefront of the battle. We don't bear the worst of it. It's not all riding on us. We have a champion, a great champion, a champion who has already won. But then we also need to understand it in this way. God chose to make the first proclamation of the gospel in terms of enmity, in terms of hostility, in terms of war and conflict. That doesn't mean that that's the only thing that's going on with the gospel, but it does mean that we can't leave that element out of view and have a true sense of the gospel. We are not really going to understand what the gospel is if we do not appreciate that it is a war between God and Satan. That is very, very important to our understanding of the gospel. I don't think it's the most important thing, but you're not going to get the whole gospel if you don't have that element in it as well. We don't really see how bad sin is until we see that sin is what enslaves us to the devil. That that's how he leads us captive. He uses sin and he uses the fear of death. And by both of those things, he keeps us chained. 
Well, in order to really understand the gospel, then you have to understand that Christ breaks those chains, that he sets us free. The whole gospel can be explained in terms of this conflict. But then there's also an application for us in terms of then what does our mindset need to be? And, you know, I think that in many ways the church in the United States, at least, has been able to become a little bit complacent. We've gotten comfortable in a lot of ways. We've put off the armor of God. We haven't been careful to have our waists girded with the belt of truth. We haven't always been fully shod. In many ways, we've taken it easy. We've lived in comfort. We've gotten soft. We're out of training. But brothers and sisters, this period of comfort, if it's not over yet, it's, it seems like it's closing quickly. We have got to embrace a military mindset. We have got to be prepared for spiritual warfare. It was never right not to be prepared, okay? Please understand that. I'm not saying, oh yeah, it was fine to take a break. We should never take a break. Paul says we need to be ready always. The Lord Jesus taught us that. Peter tells us that your enemy, the devil, as a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. But if you thought there was time for a breather, if you thought it was a good time to take off your helmet and lay down your shield and just go with the flow for a little bit, that time is over. We must have a military mindset as the people of God. There's many different images that describe the Christian life and that describe the church. But one of the images is of soldiers. Timothy is called to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You have it in the book of Joshua. The armies of Israel come into the promised land and take possession. And that does involve fighting. I've already alluded to being told to take up the whole armor of God. And to stand. There is war. There is enmity. The devil has not forgotten. And his enmity continues. He continues to seek to destroy us. And we must resist. We must take part in this spiritual battle. Now we do so in the comfort of the grace of God. We do so in the assurance that we have a great champion But it still genuinely falls to us to gird up the loins of our mind, to get ready for battle, to take up the sword of the spirit, and to engage in the spiritual conflict. Lord willing, we'll look more at what is involved in all of that. But for today, our calling is to hear the gospel from Genesis 3.15, to hear it expressed in these terms of enmity and conflict. To see the grace of God revealed in that. To rest in our great champion, but resting in our great champion. To take up arms in this ongoing conflict. To decisively identify with the seed of the woman. And to fight. To stand and to fight. People of God, the time has come. The war is here. Put on your helmets. Take up your swords and shields. And engage in the battle following your great captain, following the seed of the woman, following the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.